Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jane Gordon, who's going to talk to us about her new book, Statelessness and Contemporary Enslavement. This book was published in 2020 by Rutledge Rutledge Press, um, and the book takes up two connected understandings of this concept of statelessness, being without a state, an individual without a state, and the question of enslavement. Um, and the idea that people do not have the right to their own labor um, and the questions of consent figure into both of these issues. But I'm going to let Jane talk a lot more about that. First, I'd like to welcome Jane Gordon to the New Books Network and ask her to tell us a little about herself and how she came to this particular project. Hi, Jane. Hey, Lily. Um, so I'm Jane, and thank you for making the time to speak with me. I uh, teach political theory at uh, University of Connecticut. And in terms of this book, this book was actually a long time in the making. Um, as you see in the title, there are two key themes or phenomena that you already introduced, statelessness and contemporary enslavement. And I really began writing about statelessness as a side project in 2005. There had been a series of interdisciplinary conferences that were held in Paris, but that were very global in their scope. The first was focused on anti-Blackness. The second was focused on statelessness. And I can't remember what the third was focused on. I should remember, but I don't. Um, And I thought that the conversations that were taking place were really important and potentially very illuminating. And in 2005, I had just finished my PhD in political theory. And Ramon Grosfogel, who's a sociologist and social theorist who works primarily on immigration to the U.S. from throughout Latin America and the Hispanophone Caribbean, had invited me to be part of the statelessness conversation. And he said to me at the time, most of the people who will be participating in this conversation are going to focus on a very particular empirical example of statelessness. And so there are people who came and spoke about the Roma and about Haitians and Dominican Republic, you know, those kinds of very specific, very important empirical examples. And he'd said to me, you're a newly minted PhD in political theory. Why don't you come and give us a theoretical overview? And I thought, oof, okay, <laughs> uh, that's an important thing to be able to do and an important challenge. I, of course, had read Hannah Arendt, um, but I went to the library and just started reading sort of blindly through the stacks. Um, and it became clear to me what Hannah Arendt meant and what the 1954 convention um, around that theme had focused on. But as I began to sort of read around the theme, I was really struck by a book uh, edited by a man named James Minahan, and it was called The Encyclopedia of Nations Without States. And it literally was an encyclopedia of thousands of groups and nations that considered themselves to be semi-autonomous political forms that were not mirrored by the state formations under which they lived. And so I was thinking about that challenge, and then I was thinking about other groups of people in political struggles that don't typically get considered as part of the conversation of of statelessness. And I wanted to try without conflating anything or without diminishing the really important efforts of human rights and international lawyers to really put into conversation um, themes and problems and debates that seem to be happening in silos from one another. And so, for instance, it was very clear to me that for many indigenous people and many colonized people, um, the state has been primarily an illegitimate occupying predatory power. And so it was pretty clear to me why for many people who work primarily on indigenous themes, thinking about how to get stateless people instated um, might not seem that compelling. Um, And yet the failures to find belonging and membership and empowerment 
through existing hegemonic political institutions seemed to be a connective thread. And so what I ended up um, arguing there in what became kind of the core essay of this book in some ways was that rather than thinking of statelessness in the primary model where people are pushed out of the one political home they've known and can claim, that that's certainly a, a kind of one mode or pillar of statelessness, but that I thought that there really are at least three modes of producing stateless people. And so what I argued was in the first mode, people are actually forcibly incorporated into states. Um, and so I was thinking of the formation of European modern nation states like France um, that basically created themselves through pulling into their orbit what had been semi-sovereign territories, nations, and groups. Um, and so there were people who were brought into those centralized homogenizing states and they became citizens as a result. And for many, that was a great trade and that was just political development and history moving forward. But for many others, as we know, they continue to see the states to which they now belonged as occupying powers. And as I began to read the work of Vine Deloria Jr., he had really argued that what went on in terms of settler colonialism in the Americas really was practiced first internal to Europe. Um, and so there's a similar process, say, in the United States of countless indigenous nations being forcibly incorporated into the United, what became the United States. And those, those folks after 1924 being forcibly made into citizens. So it just struck me that when most people think of statelessness, they always think about being pushed outward you know, into a nowhere um, but there's this other model that seems just as formative and to have implicated just as many, if not more people, where people are actually forcibly brought into something. And because we assume that being brought in is an inevitable good, we hadn't really seen that it too could be seen as a form of statelessness. And then the second form is, is the one of being pushed out, which I won't elaborate because it's much more familiar to most political scientists and, and students of politics. The one thing that I would add is that Part of Hannah Arendt's classic discussion, which re has received a little bit less attention, though there are people who've definitely done incredibly creative work on it as well, is one of the things that she had argued was that when people are pushed out, the difficulty is there's nowhere really to be pushed out to because the world has been carved out into nation states and each of them uh, claim a monopoly to determine the terms of entry and exclusion. And so she had argued that one of the things that's done when stateless people are being produced by states is the creation of legal elsewheres or jurisdictions outside of the law that may be territorially inside the nation state that people are being forced outside of. And so her classic example, of course, was the concentration camp or the labor camp. But one of the things that I became really interested in when I was doing the research for this book is how many of those legal elsewheres there have been historically and especially in the United States. And so because I was thinking about statelessness in connection to enslavement, I started to think about the plantation as a legal elsewhere or certain elements of mass incarceration, definitely Japanese internment, also detention centers, that these are regularized spaces where the rules that apply to regular citizens are suspended and are suspended in patterned ways that are, I mean, they're contested for sure and protested for sure, but they're also regularized and normalized. So those are the first two modes of statelessness. The third mode is where there's no spatial change. So people aren't pushed out or in, but the membership they have and what comes with citizenship is vastly diminished. Um, and so you can think of this either in terms of um, the cutting away of social safety nets, um, whatever it is that produced political belonging is something discrete from economic membership in the society. And one of the things that I argue is that beginning in the 1990s and really with the rise of neoliberalism, there's been a, a cutting away at what it is that political membership is supposed to concretely offer. And yet states remain the primary form of political belonging or the primary form of political institution. And so people still have citizenship in the states, but what it is that that actually means and what it is that it offers is really eroded. So, so that's sort of the first discussion, which is about statelessness. And then separately, I had been researching contemporary slavery um, and I'd begun reading about it sort of as a side research interest because my, although I'm a political theorist, my work is primarily rooted in black studies, in Caribbean studies and Africana studies. 
And those are fields that um, historically have been animated, not entirely, but in large part, by how it is that Black communities have resisted uh, racialized slavery and colonialism. And so I've always seen researching and understanding slavery as being at the core of my work as a political theorist. And so when I began to encounter uh, scholarship that was arguing that there was contemporary enslavement, that slavery was going on all around us globally today, I thought, oh my God, this is something that I, I need to read about. I'd, I'd often wondered when I, as a kid, when I studied about slavery, how it was that people had lived alongside it and you know, not done anything about it or had not, had not made a point of informing themselves about it. So I thought, you know, this is, I need to inform myself about what it is that's going on. But one of the things that surprised me the most was that the communities of interlocutors with whom I'm primarily engaged, so ones in Black studies, women's studies, and then in circles of different kinds of Marxist and communist thought, a lot of the people in those circles absolutely rejected the idea that there could be contemporary enslavement. They said, sure, there's forced labor, sure, this is radically exploitative, but it's not slavery. You can't call things that are going on now slavery, and they had a whole variety of reasons for saying that. Um, and I was really compelled by that because on the one hand, these are people from whom I've learned a great deal. They've absolutely informed my thinking about unfreedom and how it is that we resist unfreedom. And yet I fundamentally disagreed. I do think that there's contemporary slavery. Um, so I spent a long time, a long time <laughs> thinking through all of their different objections and how it was that I thought that I should answer them. And so that's sort of the second big piece of this book is talking about what makes slavery both contemporary and still slavery, and why those objections, in spite of all of their credibility, and I give them a lot of space in the book because I think they're really credible objections that should inform what we do about contemporary slavery, but why I ultimately disagree with them. So those are sort of the two pieces. And then the final sort of response, really, to those to talking about statelessness and contemporary slavery is I first give a qualified defense of the idea of consent. And I can talk about that more if you'd like. And then the last piece is that a lot of the people who've spent a lot of time thinking about both statelessness and contemporary enslavement ultimately reject the state as a viable entity. Um, they don't think that nation states as we know them are salvageable. Um, they don't think that they can be reconstructed. And so the argument is, if we need political institutions, they have to be something radically other than the state. Um, and again, as with the arguments against the idea of contemporary enslavement, I look through those arguments because I think there's a lot of credibility to, to them, but ultimately argue that I think we shouldn't be anti-statist. And so I say some things about why I think I'm ultimately an anti-anti-statist, even though I share many, many sympathies with people who are anti-statist. And so just sort of to round out this overly long answer, um, one of the things that statelessness really looks at is the relationship between territory and political membership. Whereas one of the things that enslavement really illuminates is the relationship or the denial of the relationship between contributing to a place through labor and not being able to belong to it. And so they began as two separate pieces, but I realized that when I put them together, um, not only is it the case that many stateless people become vulnerable to enslavement and that many people who were enslaved then face situations of protracted uh, statelessness, it's also that these are really two kind of key lenses for thinking about what can function as viable political models and legitimate forms of political institutions. And so I guess my first question, and that was a wonderful overview of the complex um, discussion inside the book of these sort of concepts of statelessness and enslavement. Um, so thank you for laying that all out there. Um, but one of the one of the questions I have sort of following up on that and, and the way that these two conceptual points, as well as the very real people who are part of the complicated nature of statelessness and contemporary enslavement is this question of belonging. Um, and you just touched on that at the end as the way that these two concepts sort of work together in our thinking. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of belonging? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that's um, 
that's always informed sort of my thinking about politics um, is that there's often um, a willingness on the part of political societies to accept certain contributions from people, um, but not to reward them with membership, right? So um, one of the projects that I'm actually working on after this book is, is an edited book about Rosa Luxemburg. And Rosa Luxemburg was one of the most important Marxists in, in history um, and is widely credited as one of the most important female Marxist thinkers. But one of the arguments that she had made was that before there was capitalism, there was slavery. And one of the things that slavery introduced to the world, she argued, was the radical separation between people who did mental labor or cerebral labor and people who did intensely physical, manual, or corporeal labor. And she argued that in societies that naturalized enslavement, they also really naturalized the ability to divide those things clearly from one another. Right. And so her argument was that in a society like fifth century Athens, um, it was clear who ruled and who engaged in the work of the mind and who it was that was sort of making the society work through the labor of their bodies. And she argued that that also led to real problems of illegitimacy because the people who were involved in the lawmaking had nothing to do with the people who were laboring in the society. Um, and one of the things that I actually argue is that you can never radically separate those things, so that it's not as if, if one does mainly physical labor that you don't engage, you know, that your mind is not engaged and you're not thinking about your situation. Um, but that said, um, one of the reasons why I'm emphasizing her is, is it's always really struck me that um, the societies that I know best are very, very happy to rely heavily on the labor of people who they don't want to have actually meaningfully belong um, to the societies of which they're part. Um, and whether that's the case um, with the forced labor of indigenous people, whether that's the history of racialized slavery, whether that's guest worker programs that were premised upon taking labor from young Mexican and Jamaican men at the height of their powers and then exporting them back the minute they did anything dissenting, um, that there's this, there's this real effort to have a strong split between who labors and who fully belongs. Um, and similarly with, with statelessness, I mean, the thing that many people, um, don't emphasize to the extent that I think that they should is that there are instances where people become stateless through bureaucratic accidents or oversights, right? So there are people whose territories will be enveloped by the ocean, or there are people where there's state secession and they haven't thought through all of the complex categories of belonging that that will generate or, or not cover. Um, but in the vast majority of, of instances, the people who are made stateless are made stateless by their own nation states. Um, and they're made stateless because there's an intense desire for them not to belong. I mean, to say that belonging is premised upon their exclusion. Um, and so one of the reasons why I turn to the question of consent is for thinking about ways of articulating alternative forms of belonging um, that are informed by people who've consistently and systematically been excluded. Um, and for, for many political theorists, they know only too well that consent as a concept is incredibly imperfect um, and has been beaten up for very legitimate reasons, right? I mean, the sort of the bar for showing consent has been considered so low um, that it seems like or we're told that we've agreed to things that we never had an opportunity not to agree to. Um, and I agree with a lot of those criticisms, right? I think that one of the things about consent is that if you don't have a real way to opt out and to say no, that the yes that's supposedly being attributed to you doesn't mean anything either, right? Um, but at the same time, one of the things that really struck me is to be a citizen or to not be enslaved really does mean that you have opportunities to do some kind of consenting um, that the enslaved person doesn't have. And so in other words, it really struck me that while political theorists have done a great job of saying what's wrong with consent, that it's not clear to me that it's a concept that we can do without. And so especially if you're thinking about things like rape, genocide, enslavement, it seems like some category that acknowledges the wills and desires and agency of the people implicated is indispensable. Um, and so I started thinking about, you know, what then, you know, what then should it mean? What then should it consist in? Um, and I found sort of three instances to be especially useful because it seemed to me that one of the, the 
biggest ongoing criticisms of consent is that we get opportunities to say yes or no to options we never would have chosen. We don't get to construct the field that generates our options. And similarly, that one of the whole points about socialization is we're sort of educated and sculpted in ways where it seems like bad options um, are good ones or viable ones. And so a lot of the challenge is, you know, the kind of critical education that would enable you to, to reject the options that are on the table that seems to be absent. And so one of so in terms of the sort of examples of consent that seem to do better, um, I, I think that Carol Pateman's work on uh, on consent it doesn't they're 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 old but they're still very good um, is very good because on the one hand she does say that consent was really fundamental to the project of self governance right and so the idea of consent emerged with the category of masterless men and so the failures to get it right has a lot to do with the incomplete project of figuring out how we can be self-governing. But she said as as a sort of a counterexample to tacitly saying yes or no is something like like public budgeting, right? That if you take something that actually is valuable, like a budget of a university or a municipality, and have people actually be involved in determining how it should be spent, and not just how the tiny crumbs at the side should be spent, but how the budget should be spent, that that would be an example of something like meaningful consent, because people are de- are determining how what they value most should be allotted, right? Um, but similarly, I've learned a lot from the work of Paul Apostolidis um, and his most re- recent book that really draws its analysis from, um, from an ethnographic or participant observation at uh, a day labor center. And one of the things that he argues is that these day labor centers are sites of incredibly active citizenship by people who often lack legal citizenship. Um, and it's an incredibly rich book that I would you know, encourage everybody to read. But one of the things about it um, that struck me most was the pooling of res- of resources in the form of information among workers about uh, exploitative employers, right? So about employers who either refuse to give people protective gear when they're doing work, or who at the end of a very long day's work refuse to pay them for the work that they've done. And one of the things that Paul Apostolidis had, had talked about was the way that men at these centers would practice saying no um, to these opportunities for employment. And mind you, these are people who need to be employed. That's why they're at these centers. Um, but there was a sense that you could say that a day's work under those conditions is not worth it. But what people would engage in was literally practicing how you opt out of a situation that would be damaging to you and to your health. And then the last example um, is drawn from South Africa from the Women's Collective, Um, that looks at a group of primarily anti-extractivist organizers in South Africa um, who refuse the argument that they need to, um, they need to comply with, they need to consent to uh, the mineral extraction from their homelands. Um, And their argument is that the process of saying no is fundamental to the act of consent, because what they're doing is they're saying no to a model of development that's premised upon unsustainable acts of extractivism. And so when they talk about consent, they talk about it not as a one-time deal, but as an ongoing movement through which people lay claim to their ability to be self-governing and their ability to determine what's done to land that they, you know, to which they're stewards. And so for them, the argument is that consent is a process. It's about envisioning what it is, you know, what kind of polity one wants and what kind of polity one meaningfully belongs to. And so in all of these models, um, there's a relationship um, between membership and belonging. Um, And the argument that I think all of these suggest is that when one belongs, what that means is that you engage in all of the kind of political activity that's required um, to more fully be a member. Um, and so one of the things that statelessness and contemporary enslavery, uh, enslavement sorry, illuminate is what it is to be shut out of something. And so how it is that one slowly and surely protests through protest um, and constructive activity through constructive activity chips away at exclusion to build another form of belonging. And and so in in this regard, you also highlight the 
the the capacity of particular actors in some in some positions who are able to either say yes or say no as you say you can opt in or you can opt out you have the capacity to but with contemporary enslavement um, that capacity seems to not exist and so in reading your discussion of contemporary enslavement I would like if you could explain some of the complicated, sort of argument also with regard to why this is contemporary enslavement. Sure. Um, so, so you mean, what is it that makes slavery current and contemporary? Yes. Yes. Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so the argument for what makes slavery, so, so there, there are certain things that make slavery just slavery, um, regardless of the circumstances. And there are historians of slavery who hate the idea that there's a transhistorical or universal definition, because the truth is slavery has operated in a whole variety of societies, and it's been uh, used to achieve a lot of different aims. And so for many historians who've devoted a lot of time to illuminating the differences, they think a definition that collapses those differences obscures more than it illuminates. Um, at the same time, um, an argument that Joel Quirk has made that I think is exactly right is that in spite of differences, cultural differences among slave trading societies, uh, those societies were able to, to exchange people. Um, and so there was enough recognition about what a slave was for people to have a sense that they were bartering in kind. Right. And so there are important differences. I don't want to diminish them. Um, but there's no doubt that, you know, slavery is pretty recognizable um, for a, a, a core set of things. Right. It almost always involves um, the absolute control of one person by another or by a set of others. Um, in some instances, that control is enforced by law and by societal norms and political institutions. In others, it relies much more heavily on gaps in the law. Um, and on physical violence. Um, but in almost every instance, that control is exercised for the pursuit of economic benefits or uh, to satisfy other kinds of desires for status, for leisure, whatever it may be. But there's a fundamental unilateralism, um, or sort of a non-relation that's at the core of enslavement, right? Um, but one of the reasons many people would say that contemporary slavery isn't slavery is that in most of the world today, slavery is not legal. Right. And there's a sense that most people don't support slavery. You know, there are very few things that people kind of can agree are right and wrong. Uh, most people would say slavery is a clear wrong. Right. Um, and as a result, it's very rare that somebody who is engaged in those kind of unilateral relations I was describing, it's very rare for them to claim ownership of another person. And so there are many people, especially uh, scholars of the transatlantic slave trade, who say, but part of what makes slavery slavery and so degrading is an entire society suggesting that it's okay. And an entire society getting on board with enforcing the whims of your master, right? But at the same time, um, even if there are many people who won't publicly say, I own this person, or yeah, I own this person, I'm their master. Um, there are many, many instances of enslaved people who describe somebody saying as much to them, right? Um, but one of the things that's really different about, um, about what's going on now is, I mean, there's several things. One is that the global economy has changed, right? And so although there are many people enslaved, it's not sort of in one pocket of the economy. They're not all enslaved people aren't all producing one primary good or three primary goods that function in a clear economic domain. Instead, you have people who are who are enslaved contributing in many different pockets of global supply chains, right? So the labor is sort of much more distributed across the economy and across the globe. Um, and similarly, um, with something like transatlantic slave trade in particular, a slave was a really uh, valuable commodity. People actually paid um, a considerable sum um, for enslaved people. And while many slave owners were incredibly sadistic and brutal, et cetera, there was a sense that a relationship with a slave was lifelong. Um, but just as our relationship to other kinds of commodities has changed, right? Now, if we get a microwave and it breaks, um, it's actually cheaper to replace it than it is to fix the microwave. Um, the same is, is true with enslaved people, right? That there's such a massive surplus of human population um, and it's biggest in places that are the most impoverished. And so there's a sense that life is very cheap. 
Um, and so many people will enslave another person for a very short period of time. And if they get sick or if they're you know, damaged, um, they'll just kind of dispose of them. Um, and so the sense that this was a lifelong relationship, the kind of stuff that got elaborated into all kinds of paternalistic ideology is going to be absent. Right. Um, and so so there's so the so part of it is that enslavement follows and mirrors the global political economy in all kinds of vital ways. Um, just as production has completely changed, so has the role of slaves in it. Um, but the other big change is that this has now become a much more global phenomenon. Um, and so one of the things that is creating a lot of vulnerability for people to become enslaved is that there are often people who are face all kinds of severe discrimination, including statelessness, um, in their home areas. And so they're desperate to migrate, but they often face restrictions on their ability to move, um, which creates opportunities for other people to make a lot of money through helping them to circumvent those, you know, those, those restrictions. And the thing is then when those people are in places where they're not supposed to be, where they're seen primarily as illegals, they similarly can't take advantage of the kinds of political and social and legal protections that are supposed to be available. And so although we, you know, as I said earlier, people will say, well, nobody supports enslavement. Um, that may be true, but many people support the kinds of policies and policy making and domestic and international laws that really facilitate and make very lucrative um, the kind of unwanted migration of people who are desperate to migrate. And in that regard, can you highlight some of the ways that these global, national, and even regional laws and regulations have opened up this capacity to essentially have forms of slavery or enslavement? Sure. Um, so, I mean, so I, I would suggest a couple, right? I mean, one is, um, one of, you know, there's a clear spike in enslavement that follows the 1990s and domestic and international policymaking of the 1990s, right? And so um, the peaking of enslavement really does get set into motion um, with neoliberal political economic policies, right? Um, and at their core, um, it's much easier for finance to move than it is for people to move, right? And yet people still move. Um, and that's coincided with a real undercutting of labor law. Um, and so on the one hand, you have the, you know, a clamping down on borders at the same time as you don't have any clamping down on labor regulations. And at the same time as you have many nations destabilized, um, and so people looking to migrate. Um, and it's a really um, terrible combination, right? And so I would say that sort of in terms of mapping the international. And then domestically, um, one of the, the arguments that makes some people averse to the language of contemporary enslavement is there's a view that we're still in the country of the United States grappling with the many legacies of, of enslavement, traditional transatlantic enslavement, right? That we still are in terms of life outcomes, who's incarcerated, who's not, who's educated, who's not, there's still all too clear links between the plantation past and the present, right? And so there are many people who are working on trying still to complete the unfinished work of, of reconstruction, who sort of say, well, you know, all this talk about contemporary slavery draws attention away from the unfinished legacies of a, of a primary enslavement. Um, but the truth is the people who are most vulnerable to enslavement in this country continue to be black and brown and red people. Um, and I say that because one of the things that really makes people vulnerable is the absence of safety of social safety nets, right? So for instance, some of the most targeted people for sex trafficking, which is not the primary form of contemporary enslavement, but it is the form that gets the most attention, um, are, are young black and indigenous girls who are rotating out of foster care. Um, so the absence of um, places for those young women to go is one of the prime reasons why they became become so clearly targeted um, for entrapment and contemporary enslavement. And so, so on the one hand, you have sort of what's going on internationally around borders, but then domestically, the rolling back of welfare state kinds of policies has really stimulated and contributed to um, the kinds of absence of opportunities that make people vulnerable. And then when you add to that, that there's already significant and ongoing um, histories of discrimination and oppression, 
um, that makes the vulnerability that people are facing much less visible. And I wanted to ask you about this because you sort of, you, you note it in a number of the discussions in the book with regard to the fact that there's a high visibility around these issues of sex trafficking um, and that this has become a kind of cause celeb um, in, in the West, but in particular in the United States. And that it's, and yet it is not the primary form of contemporary enslavement. Can you discuss a little bit about why this in particular has been a focus for many with regard to the problem, but it's not really the center of the problem? Sure. And I'm really informed by the work of others on this particular question. Um, I have really learned a lot from the work of people like Kamala Kempadu, um, Lauren Augustine, Joe uh, Dozima. They've really been at the forefront of making this argument. Um, but their claim is sort of, there, there are multiple different dimensions, right? So on the one hand, um, the argument is that when it comes to something like sex trafficking, sex trafficking, um, it's a it's um it's a much more titillating um, form of oppression and exploitation than reading about people who are working unremunerated in in the fields, right, or who are doing domestic care work. Um, so there's a sense that because sex trafficking is about sex, um, there's there's a much more willing there's a much greater willingness to pay attention to it um, than other forms of labor that are frankly devalued already. Um, but there's there there are many other dimensions as well, right? So there's a, an argument as well that, the, as I had said, that the period where trafficking and contemporary slavery really takes off is the 1990s onwards, and it's a period where there's much less interest in investing in in institutions um, that are about education or social services, and much more interest in investing in punitive forms of institutions, so border control, military, etc. And so there are many people who've argued that. The the victim, as portrayed in a lot of sex trafficking literature, is a much more um, attractive one in the sense that it's typically framed as a young woman, often a young white woman, um, often a young Eastern European white woman um, who's been duped um, and who sort of innocently fell into uh, horrible exploitative uh, conditions, um, and that it's so clear that the state should come in and swoop in and protect um, this young woman who's in need of, of care and recuperation. Um, and so a lot of the earliest anti-trafficking work was really led by um, the Republican Party and by neoconservatives um, who saw this as a clearly sort of good cause, um, you know, where it was clear sort of who the perpetrators were, who the victims were, and how to respond. Um, it was also accompanied by a lot of um, pushing for policies that would um, further criminalize and demonize sex work in general. Um, And so a lot of the most important critics of the early work on sex trafficking pointed out that the people who were leading it tended to be Christian neoconservatives who were antipathetic to sex anyway, um, and who were in favor of more kind of patriarchal models of society and family. And so they saw the rise of what they were calling sex trafficking as a sign of greater societal moral decay. Um, that required a kind of stronger, more masculine state to come in and defend um, these young, poor women. And in doing so, they were echoing the language of the Mann Act um, and the panic and hyperbole around um, the white sex trade from the 1920s. Um, And so there are women who who are trafficked and enslaved for sex. It's not as if that's not true. Um, And they are found primarily in more affluent parts of the globe. So Western Europe, the U.S., um, places like Dubai, there's sort of, there are these pockets and centers. And so some of the attention is because those are sort of in the U.S., they're in rich uh, industrial nation states. Um, But a lot of it has been to focus on it because it seems like the stakes are clear and it doesn't really require talking about labor and economic inequality and exploitation um, in ways that require a more searching kind of analysis. Um, and similarly, a lot of the labor where people are most um, enslaved are forms of labor that in the U.S. Um, have not been forms of protected labor anyway. 
Um, and so historically, um, the NLRB didn't protect agricultural work and it didn't protect domestic care work because those were work um, that historically African-American former enslaved people had done. And so in the U.S., a lot of enslaved work is that is, you know, is concentrated around those forms of work um, that continue to be less protected. And even in our contemporary discussions around the COVID-19 and yes. work, um, this is very much the same the same conversation. It may not be people who are enslaved workers, but the conversation is very much around the same groups of laborers. Absolutely. In our society. Um, so you, you sort of talk about in the book... Um, the complicated role of the state in both of these um, sort of conceptual and real um, problematic zones. Um, and and you note that you are not necessarily anti-statist. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> so I would like for you to explain the role of the state and perhaps why you are not ultimately anti-statist. Sure. Um, so given what we've already talked about in terms of statelessness, I mean, the idea that it's often states that are rendering people stateless, right? right. And if we then look at with, with historical enslavement and contemporary enslavement, with historical enslavement, uh, states, I mean, legalized uh, the institution, right, and, and profited very directly from its existence. And as I was saying about contemporary enslavement, even if states say that enslavement is illegal, they engage in policymaking that actually facilitates its spread, right? So given that, it seems like states are on the wrong side of both of these issues, right? Yes. Um, and similarly, if you kind of expand the analysis, it's it's not very difficult uh, to be very critical of um, whether it's that states have been captured by corporate interests, whether it's that they are corporate interests, however it is that you want to formulate it. Um, there's so many instances where states function in primarily predatory ways, um, sort of severing the relations between people and communities and land and all kinds of other things. Um, and so they seem, in other words, to be regularly on the wrong side. Um, and so why not just write them off, right? Um, so on the one hand, um, I'm enough of, I teach at a public institution. Um, there, there are a lot of instances of public goods. Um, and there, and yes, of course, it takes tremendous uh, efforts and lots of uh, vigilance um, to make sure that they're public institutions that actually are servicing public goods. Um, but it seems to me that there are enough examples of states functioning in other ways, not primarily predatorily or not only in predatory ways, um, that at least leave open the possibility that we can insist on and get different and better kinds of outcomes. Um, and then there, there's sort of two other kind of main ways um, that I think about this. The first is that for many people who are anti-statist, um, they distinguish between political institutions on the one hand and states on the other, right? And so when a political institution is doing something that's a relative good, so say offering public education or offering universal health care or training generations of medical doctors who you know, take care of all kinds of people. Um, for many anti-statists, those would be political institutions, whereas what would be called a state are the instances that are lamentable and regrettable. And it seems to me you can't have it both ways, right? Um, that political, <laughs> that, that, that just as political institutions can do a number of, of things, states can as well. Um, and we've been talking a lot about sort of the Euromodern period, so I would say like the 15th century onwards, but there really were forms of state and forms of political institution that preceded that, and presumably there will be forms that follow what we have right now. Um, and so it seems to me that when you're thinking about states on the one hand, they're here, they're they're existing and they're incredibly consequential. And so if we take our hands off of them, um, I really fear what the results will be. I mean, in other words, if everybody who's concerned about progressive causes gives up on the state, I think we'll be in grave danger um, and that many, many people will be in grave danger. Um, but the other thing is, I think that we need to be involved in thinking about what the better alternatives would be. Um, and so one of the things that I always try to do in my own scholarship and research and teaching is to think about constructive alternatives. Um, and so I, I think one of the reasons why I spend as much time as I did thinking about statelessness and thinking about enslavement is to really think about the ways that you could counteract 
um, the kinds of vulnerabilities that those phenomena exemplify um, and intensify. Um, and so one of the reasons I, I'm thinking through these phenomena is I really want to think about um, institutions of political membership and belonging that can do better at reducing vulnerability and reducing the opportunities for people to make a lot of money off of other people's vulnerability. And and so you note in the introduction, um, you take Lenin's words um, and say, what shall be done? Um, so, I, and, you, and you've just left me the opening also <laughs> of um, the institutions that can, or, or how do we think about how to solve these problems in terms of this question of political belonging, of of removing the opportunity for the exploitation. Um, how how do we get there from here? Sure. So the last, I mean, and especially 2020, but the the last four years for many in America have been um, really depressing um, and have led a lot of people to real political despair. Um, and it's not only in America, it's global. Um, but one of the things that's really struck me about the recent past is how many genuinely creative and constructive uh, community and political projects are underway. Um, and so whether these are projects of self-education, whether they're projects of self-organizing, whether they're efforts to unionize forms of work like domestic care work that historically have not been organized, um, whether it's been movements that have really taken the globe by a storm or that are connecting up movements that had historically been disparate. And so in terms of new ways of thinking about the global, there's so many amazing examples um, that are multiplying all the time. Um, and I think, you know, at the core of those movements are often the people, I mean, almost always the people who are most directly implicated. Um, so for instance, I have a, a PhD student at, at UConn. Uh, her name's Erica McDonald. And she works, her, her major advisor is Shireen Hertel, who works on sex worker activism in Las Vegas and New South Wales. And a lot of her work is about the limits of what decriminalization or or legalization actually achieved. And the work that a lot of sex workers are doing to fill the gaps that they still face as stigmatized workers, even though in in some ways there have been some legal victories to make what they do more permissible. And a lot of those women um, have remarkable things to say about why it is that doing sex work is actually less degrading than doing some things like teaching kindergarten in places that are consistently understaffed. Um, and, and their work of their, there's also published work of so many other people who are involved, um, with formerly enslaved people, um, or people who refuse to call their circumstances ones of enslavement. And the diagnoses that are emerging from those folks are so rich in insights and ways of thinking about what the relationship should be between labor, migration, and belonging. And I think if we center those, um, we'll be far better equipped to develop better, better political institutions for tomorrow. So given that... Um you have some laid the groundwork for potentially the next project. Jane, what is it that you're working on now in the middle of a pandemic? (laughs) In the middle of a pandemic. It's very strange writing when you don't know when the world that you're writing to is so in flux. It's a very strange endeavor. (laughs) Um, So I'm sorry, Lily, I'm going to have a long answer for this one. That's okay. I'll try to keep it quick. Um, So there, there are three projects that I'm currently working on. Um, one is a project that I'm currently finishing that I'm co-editing with Drusilla Cornell, and it's an edited volume called Creolizing Rosa Luxemburg. And it revisits the pathbreaking Marxist work of Rosa Luxemburg, exploring its relevance and the way that it was sort of refashioned and extended in the global South. Um, and so there are people... Uh, who are looking at the the ongoing usefulness of Rosa Luxemburg in contexts like South Africa. There's a fantastic chapter by um, Josue Lopez that looks at the migrant caravans as a contemporary example of the general strike. Um, so it, it's a book sort of teeming with uh, revisiting wonderful historical insights, but also trying to think creatively um, about their ongoing relevance. Um, and hopefully 
you know, taking the pandemic very seriously. <laughs> it should be out by fall, but we'll see. Um, the second project is actually a short intellectual biography that revisits the life and work of Ida B. Wells. Um, and it's part of the Black Lives series that the press polity uh, is overseeing. And they, they, the project of which it's a part is a really interesting one. It began right after the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. And it basically invited historians of Black political thought to revisit uh, figures and their insights that unfortunately seemed all too present and, and relevant. Um, and for me, uh, Ida B. Wells faced a moment of such intense racial terrorism um, that it seemed to be, uh, and, and was incredibly constructive and incredibly brave. Um, and she also did pioneering work uh, in journalism. And so it seemed to me that she faced conditions that were definitely at least as difficult as our own. Um, and so it seemed like looking at her life and work would be incredibly useful for equipping ourselves for the present. And then the last project re um, relates most directly to our conversation, um, which is I'm thinking about doing a, a writing a book called Beloved Political Institutions. Um, and this is a book that will choose a series, probably about four, of political institutions that experience surplus legitimacy. So not for everybody, but within particular communities, they're genuinely beloved because they so open up. Um, the scope and depth of people's options. Um, and so I'm thinking about sort of the, the one key political institution that's under attack right now is the U.S. Postal Office. Um, but I use it as an example, not only because, I mean, what postal office and mail does is to expand our reach so that there are people from whom we're very far away, but with whom we can be in contact through the exchange of regularized, reliable mail. It's also an institution that created upward mobility um, for major portions of the Black middle class. Um, and so I'm thinking about institutions that can offer us examples and really guide our thinking for generating more viable political institutions more generally. And so it will be a focused study of a small set that hopefully can illuminate particular domains that we need to think through in creating better kinds of institutions. When you finish any of these and they come out, will you come and speak with me again on the New Books Network? I would be happy to. <laughs> I would be Excellent. delighted to. <laughs> Thank you. Today, I've been joined by Jane Gordon to talk about her excellent book, Statelessness and Contemporary Enslavement. This was published in 2020 by Rutledge Press, and I believe it's available at Rutledge's um, website. Any place else, Jane, that one might want to pick up your book? I'm always a fan of used booksellers like Better World Books, but you can definitely find it at Rutledge. Great. Thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Absolutely.